Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Les Reed, former technical director of Southampton and the FA. Les, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Les, as we begin with every guest, we begin by asking them a question. What was their earliest football memory? My earliest football memory, um, apart from uh, playing in the garden with my dad, um, it, 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 the biggest one that's made an impact on, on me would be that when I was uh, 12 years of age, um, I my dad happened to get tickets for the 1966 World Cup. So I watched every England game, including the final at Wembley. And um, it just blew me away. It just blew me. So I was in love with football. I played for my school team and my local club and, and stuff like that. Um, but to be given the privilege to be able to witness um, that that team in action. And and I was a real, I collected all the the wall charts and all the stickers and everything. And I read it, you know, I had my scrapbook of all the newspaper cuttings. Um so, so you know it wasn't just watching the games it was like really into it um and i think that probably was what got me on the route of saying that like, you know uh, it's it's it, it, it's it's not going to be enough for me not to be involved in football in some way and having that dream but all kids have that dream at that age so but that would be yeah that would be my earliest football memory and it, it in in it's we see it repeated lots and lots of times but being there when they lifted Bobby Moore onto their shoulders and he carried the World Cup around. That that was an old tradition. The FA Cup winners did it. You know, the captains sat on their shoulders. We've lost that a little bit now. But um, that, for me, is the classic photograph of success, you know, and um, and that'll stay with me forever. Unbelievable memory to begin the show. And it's almost as though we've come full circle because you'd look now, we're talking during a World Cup. I mean, little did you know then that one day you would become the sporting director of the FA, and in fact, you've held that position twice, if I'm correct. You know, the role of sporting director, it's one which you've become largely renowned for, Les, in your career. I mean, how would you begin to describe that role? Well, it's it's certainly um, it's certainly a, a an emerging role. So as as the game has modernised and 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 as as the clubs have got bigger and grown, um it's become much more all encompassing. Um, so it's, it's, it's grown into, into a, a huge, a huge role and a necessary role in, in my view. If a club is looking to go on a journey and, and, and achieve success, grow and then maintain and sustain success for the, for the future. So um, for me, um, I wanted, I wanted to play for England and I, and, 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 and I played, at schoolboy level, um, and it never it never amounted to anything. Um, so I never, you know, that never went on. I had a pretty mediocre career in in the game as a player at the lower league level. Um, but it was kind of okay. If I'm not going to play for England, then I want to coach England. And I used to tell people that, and they sort of laugh, and you know. But but so I'd set about learning about coaching, all my coaching qualifications. And as I said, took on that sort of studious approach to meticulous detail and um, from my Panini sticker albums. I don't think they were Panini then, but 
um, to to the detail of, of what it takes to win football matches and coaching. I did my coaching badges very early. I I used to, when I was in the in the sixth form at school, I used to go to what we called the old Inner London Education Authority play centres, which was free coaching for kids every night after school in primary schools. And I did that every night of the week. Um, and um, then summer holidays and so on. So I just I just had minutes after minutes after minutes of of coaching practice and experience and so on from little kids playing street football and then gradually as I as I you know grew 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 up and got jobs and started I started as a PE teacher but while I was PE teaching I worked I had the privilege to work with a guy called Dario Grady who was a guru of coaching at that time he was a youth coach at Orient and they used my school as their centre of excellence and Dario asked me to go and help with the coaching there so you know I, I learned from a master and that just went on through throughout my career um and I I won't say I had a plan that was I need to do this and that'll lead to this and that'll lead to this it it basically just happened but it what it what it did is after after a period of time um it gave me experience in a number of roles in in the game from youth and grassroots to academy to to first team but also in and out you know I was lucky I've had three periods at the FA where um in and out of international football so I think I'm still the only person to have coached every national team age group from under 15 to to the senior team um so you know that gave me incredible knowledge of of what it takes to become an international player and go through that pathway, which I hope then I was able to rely on as both as technical director at the FA, but also um, in the clubs that I worked at in terms of joining up the academy and the youth programmes into transition into the first team. So um, I arrived at sporting directorship, um, um, if you like, uh, just on the basis of the experiences I've had in the game, that all my experiences seem to come together and support what what the requirements are to be a good sporting director. So then later in life, using the FA qualifications through through level one to five talent ID courses up to the, the technical director working with FIFA and UEFA, I've tried to contribute to formalising that experience into... Um, courses and and uh, learning tools for people who aspire to be sporting directors to be pointed in the right direction and taken on the on the right pathway to to become uh well-trained well-educated um football executives so i'm doing a lot of that work now with uefa um but um i think i think you know people have sporting director wasn't a role in england you know it, long before that, it was a role in Holland and Germany and, and France, etc. And we've kind of um, morphed into it. And at the beginning, it was seen as a bit of a threat because, you know, you look at how clubs were run 20 years ago. Um, it was the manager, the cult of the manager. The manager was on top of everything. And then you look at the, you know, the Alex Ferguson's, the Arsene Wenger's, the length of time where they they dominated the clubs. Um, 
but but when you even know those people and you know the work that Arsene Wenger is doing with with uh, FIFA at the moment with regard to technical directors, is they understood that you can't run everything. You might have done, um, you know, a long time ago when everything was much smaller, sports science, analytics, sports medicine. You know, I went to Charlton Athletic um, in, uh, in, in the mid-90s in League One or the champion, sorry, the championship. And um, there was Alan Kerbishley, myself, Keith Peacock, Jimmy Hendry, the physio, and the doctor. That was a, a, a technical staff of five. Doctor was part-time. Physio doubled up as a kit man. Keith Peacock was the, uh, doubled up as chief, chief, head of scouting and, and the reserve team. I was assistant coach and oversaw the academy and Kerbs was the manager. And we all reported into Kerbs. Um, but very quickly, as as the Premier League grew and so on, it would have been impossible to have that kind of that kind of structure in a Premier League football club and expected the manager to have oversight of all of it. Um, and many attempted to, um, and 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 it it's, it it didn't work out. Um, so we're now. It's on trend now to get sporting directors. You know, there are sporting directors. I do a lot of work now for Wrexham. And there are a lot of sporting directors emerging in the Banarama League, you know. So so it's it's been accepted. Um, but what hasn't really happened is there's probably not a real clear definition of what that role is um, and what kind of qualifications you should have. Um and I don't think necessarily at the moment that's necessary because um, the role you play will be very much um, affected by the structure of the club you're in and who does what already. So if you take an example of um, a club where the, the chief executive or the chairman has been the one who signs off the transfers and does the deals and all the all the information is gathered by a chief scout, um, and they have a relationship with the coach. Um, it it doesn't work if you just if the chief exec's not going to say, all right, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to step back from that. Um, and the 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 head of coach scouting or recruitment, it reports probably to the manager, is not going to say, well, I'm quite happy leaving that and doing that. So it, it takes a while for 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 that to kind of morph into a proper setup or structure. Um, so what you find is that where a club chief executive is still heavily involved in negotiations, you know, not could be very very successful at it. Um, then, then what they probably need is someone who's almost like an assistant sporting director who does all the legwork, gets all the information, feeds that back in, organises meetings with the manager, and then they end up deciding who they're going to recruit. That's a whole different thing to then being the guy that's responsible for performance science, performance medicine, performance analytics, scouting the opposition, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of different skill sets there. So I accidentally amassed those those skill sets through the roles I undertook as I came through my career developed. Um, but um question now is what do you do if you're if you're if you're, I, I speak to players at the moment, it always used to be if you stop playing, you coach. When the players are not like that anymore, they're a different type of person. 
A lot of them have got external business interests and so on. They're, they're, they're clued up. And um, they don't want to be coaches. They've, they've seen the agony that those of us that have been coaches go through and they say, that's not for me. Um, so one alternative, which is grown, is the media. So go into the media, get into you know, punditry and so on and so forth. But a lot more are saying, I quite like the recruitment thing, you know. Um, I quite like the idea of being a sporting director. How do I go about that? Um, and in in some cases, I've seen appointments of sporting directors who come straight off the playing into, into being a sporting director. But they tend to be the guy that sits next to the chairman in the stand or the guy that the, the chairman says, go and find out this for me, go and find out that for me, because the chairman's really the sporting director. Um, some of them learn as that goes off. And then there's a whole range of courses now, um, at, you know, universities, Manchester Metropolitan University, do a, a master's degree in sporting directorship. That's probably the most established. And then there are lots of other little courses and things like that. Um, but it's, it really is, I think more about personality and, and credibility. So one of the big things for me was, um, if I'm responsible for everything that is football, um, i.e. hiring and firing the coach, negotiating the contracts with the players and the agents, um, heading up recruitment, and at the same time, um, the heads of sports medicine, sports science, etc., reporting into me, um, then I better have some credibility in those areas. So I think my physical education background gave me a, a bit of a foundation for understanding sports science and what it meant in terms of performance but I would never have been able to to um, be a practitioner to that extent um, but I needed to know how the practitioners worked how they thought what was a good one what wasn't so when I'm we're hiring staff in that you know uh, I know I know what we're getting but at the same time they know that I understand um, to a reasonable level, what their role is, what their job is, so I can support them in their role. Now that also applies to the head coach. So, so when I appoint a uh, a head coach, um, like 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 Maurizio Pochettino, I would go through a rigorous interview process and challenge them on their technical, tactical strategies, their uh, philosophies. It 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 became quite a, a process that if you got out the other side of it you probably were pretty good um whereas a lot of clubs would have in the past just sat down had a coffee with with the coach and the guy kind of you know quite like this guy you know he sounds like a reasonable personality he's got this cv yeah we'll give him a crack um but but for me to be able to operate it in a way where i challenge things like their 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 beliefs in pressing or you know drop in to counter-attack or whatever, they've got to see that I've got credibility to ask those questions. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of, well, what do you know? You know, um, And then there's the bit that once they're in position is how do you best support them? Do, do you just let them get on with it, show them their office, these are all your staff, there's the players, and say, you know, I'll, I'll talk, to, talk to you in, in a couple of years when your contract's up or whatever. Or do you play an active role in supporting 
the, the the new head coach and the head coach throughout his progress. I think you have to, but you also have to have the credibility to be able to do that. So so from the point of view of um, being able to review performance with the coach, so being able to look at a run of six games, um, four draws, one defeat and a, and a win and say, what do we think of that? How do we analyse that? What do we need to do to move on? Ask the questions, but don't come up with the answers. Don't be saying, I think you should do this, or I think you should be doing that. It's 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 being able to come up with the questions that, that they they provide their own answers to, but with the caveat is great. So how can I help you do that? What do you need? What do you you know? That might be a simple one of 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 um when we appointed Maurizio, um lots of nights days and nights going through videos and like, analysing the players with him, um, him asking me questions, et cetera, et cetera. And then coming to um, an international break, we were able to take the players away because uh, it was November and it was cold. Now, it wasn't Dubai. It wasn't um, it wasn't Marbella. It was um, Barcelona. So through Maurizio's connections at Barcelona, we were able to go and train at Barcelona's training ground. And our players are training on the pitch next to Puyel, Messi, whoever, Busquets. Um, and um, meeting these guys. Now, the impression that that gave the squad about Maurizio was huge. It was huge with Pep Guardiola hugging Maurizio as best mates. It was kind of wow. So this guy, three weeks ago, who we'd only heard he'd ever coached for six months at Espanol, um, is actually pretty credible. And that got him off to a real rolling start. But that had to be a planned thing. It, it, it you know, it, it had to be how are we how are we gonna do this? Um rather than just seek popularity by taking the players off to a good little mid-season break in Dubai. You know, this had to be, this is the standard we're setting for you guys as a squad from now on. Go and measure it by, by looking at the standards at Barcelona. Um, so so that, you know, that's for me is is where you have to have some understanding of the thinking in, in, in the true sporting director role. How do you support the coach now? And then the difficult times when you have to ask the difficult questions, because what tends to happen is my view. And I said this to all the managers is I'm hiring you. And if the day comes, I'll fire you. It won't be someone from abroad or an owner from somewhere else who's is, it will be because there's a judgment being made on the fact that, that this isn't working and we've tried everything. And that's the key thing is that won't happen until we've turned over every stone to make you successful. So from the day you sign this contract, my job is to make you as successful as I can I can, in terms of the support I can give you. And if there's changes you need to make and you can explain why you want to tweak this, tweak that, we'll get it done to make you successful, to give you every single opportunity to do what you're good at. Um, but the, the promise is if, that, if it doesn't work and on the day, you know, that, that it, it we, we push comes to shove, 
it will be me sitting down with you and talking you through that and why this decision's been been made. Um, it won't be a text. It won't be a phone call from a secretary or or whatever. It will be a face to face. Let's sit down and talk this through. Um, and you'll get the right the right feedback. Um, and therefore, that's that's what makes the 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 true sporting director, the guy that is is you know in every sense of the word in charge of football. Um, the 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 most important role for me in the club um, because what the sporting director do, has to do is translate all of the vision, culture and and aims and objectives of the ownership uh, and and the investment they make into into success into a winning a winning culture and, and success um, it's not a matter of of simply being involved in things and then stepping back and leaving it all to the manager it's 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 it has to be more than that if you are doing the job properly now in, in the past that role's been undertaken by other people it might be a very very good manager chairman relationship or a good manager chief executive relationship but that credibility to be able to ask the pertinent question only comes when you've got the experience um that says to the manager this guy knows what he's talking about he might disagree with you but but he can't say what do you know you know so it's important to amass all those experiences so when when the manager's saying the fitness coach is useless he's not doing the right job and the fitness coach is saying the manager doesn't give me enough time with the players it's a case of how, how do you balance that up? How do you how do you know which one of them is telling the truth, or what what in other words, which one of them which which one of them doesn't understand the needs of the other one, and then explaining to both of them and trying to make it work. Um, but what can tend to happen is the manager goes to the chairman or the chief executive and says, "I don't like the fitness coach," and the fit, he says, "Well, get rid of him, man. Bring your own one." And then you know, after a while, that manager becomes the the be all and end all and of course when that manager goes everything goes with him and you have to start again so the sporting director's role is to try and avoid that happening as well so that when a manager does go there's a smooth transition into the next one and it's not it's not always easy um and you do need a significant level of understanding from ownership around around how you're how are you doing it? And they need to buy in because where it can go wrong is once the, the ownership get a little bit hands-on and want to be, want to have an influence in areas that they're not, they're not experienced in. That's when it can become a bit difficult. And that's, that's when, you know, you've got to be careful with, with egos. I mean, I, you know, I had 10 years at Southampton, but in that time, um, I was I was probably offered five or six opportunities to go to bigger clubs, but I wouldn't have been able to operate in the same way because I knew it would lead to um, to conflict in terms of managing up because people wouldn't have been comfortable with re relinquishing the bits that they do and they enjoy that that I would uh, you know that I would be doing at Southampton. So 
you've also got to know if if you want to go into a career in it is you've got you've got to you've got to be able to you've got to be prepared to turn things down or walk away when you know it's when you know that the that it's it, this is all conflicting it's not this is not going to work you know so so that's that's important as well um because football clubs um ebb and flow so easily um and and it is a game full of egos and people you know there are owners who get into it purely on the ego side of things and want to you know just want to be you know it used to be it's a strange one it it used to be royal rovers days it was the captain and the players then it became the cult of the manager and the coach the shankies and the you know that that and that's that's carried on but there have been in recent years uh probably with the with abramovich coming into the country and 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 changing the whole thing as the Premier League changed as well. Um, everybody knows who the chairman is now. The chairman's quoted in in the press when you know back in the day the chairman stayed out of it and uh and was was t- took a back seat to the experts if you like. But you know that's that's changing now and there's a much bigger media interest in club ownership, whether it's you know the the kind of Newcastle thing, the Man City thing, or it's you know it's it's individuals involved like like uh, Todd Bowley at Chelsea, you know, gets a lot of media attention. Um, so, you know that the circumstances within which you work as a sporting director will have a significant influence on how you're judged or you can be successful. Um, and and when that changes it can it can be uh it, it, it can be disastrous um so uh I, I think my experiences over the years in different roles have, have got me to meet and get to understand all these different people particularly at Southampton in the Premier League where I sat on the Premier League shareholders table with all the owners and CEOs of all the other clubs uh, when where that's where all the big decision making is done, and so you know, getting to know all those people personally and what their views are, because when there's a debate in the house about you know prize money or whatever it might be, everybody speaks up, and you get to to understand. And then of course you go every time you have a match, you go and meet these people again individually in the boardroom, you know. And every now and again, one of them will phone you and say, "Do you fancy having a coffee? I'd like to run something past you." So once you get to know the nature of these guys, and they're all very, very different, um, um, you get a big understanding of how football is run and how football clubs are run. And and therefore, if you've got that knowledge, it's going to be invaluable as a sporting director when you operate in that environment. I think that's huge. Have you got me back, Connor? I have, yeah. Don't know what happened there, Les. You as soon as you started asking a question, it froze. I don't know what, and then I lost you. Right. <clears throat> you good to go again? Yeah, yeah, sure. Fantastic. No, thanks for your patience. Just don't know what happened, but um, no, Les, we were speaking throughout your monologue there. I mean, at Southampton, I mean, you guys did enjoy unprecedented success. I mean, for people that aren't 
too familiar with the story. I mean, when you went into Southampton, they were a League One club, which is the third tier of English football. I mean, the vision and the goal of the ownership at the time was to take the club back into the Premier League within five years and have 50% or more of the playing staff as homegrown. And you smashed that. But there's something there about surrounding yourself with the right people because we look at some of the people that were employed at, by the club at the time. You had Paul Mitchell, now the technical director of Monaco, Ross Wilson, technical director of Rangers, who probably experienced quite the apprenticeship under your own tutelage. And there was a mantra that you guys spoke about at the time at Southampton, which was turning potential into excellence. What did that exactly mean? Yeah, it, it was. It it was. Um, you're right. We the club was in in League One with a ten point deduction and had just been bought out of administration by Marcus Lieber, a Swiss businessman. And at that time, I had started the company which I now run, um, which was which was um, designed to uh, consult on football strategy. So. How do you answer those questions that Marcus Lieber posed? So they were they were my first client, um, and so they 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 basically said to me, "Yeah, this is what we want to do. We want to be in the Premier League in five years' time. Uh, we'd like to play exciting football that that motivates the fans, and we'd like to have fifty percent a target of fifty percent of our squad as homegrown talent." Um, but when we get to the Premier League, we want to be a top half Premier League club and we want to be a sustainable top half Premier League club. So that was the challenge. Um, first question was, can it be done? Answer from me was yes, but but the strategy to do that needs to be carefully thought out and, um, and it needs to be adhered to. It needs to be a, a commitment. Um, so having gone away and kind of worked on the plan and represented it to them, um, the the one of the key factors I used in the presentation was that Southampton had been a founder member of the Premier League. It had at that time, I think the stadium was twelve years old. It had a good stadium. It owned the stadium outright. There were no debts on it or anything like that, and it owned its own training ground. So as an investment, it was a very, very sound investment that had potential to return to the Premier League from whence it came. So it was a Premier League club and it was well supported as a Premier League club. So that would indicate that if we got it back to there, um, it would be a sustainable proposition. So it has great potential. Um, Having looked by that time at the academy what was clear was down to about the under 14s at the time um, all the best players had gone so when the club went into administration um, there was an opportunity for players to leave and go to other clubs so that they lost a lot of talent Um, but the other thing was that all the best young players who were in the first team squad had also gone in order to raise some money um, whilst the club was in administration. So the players that were kind of left that were in the first team squad or in the reserves as it was then were not the best of the Southampton Academy. They were what was left. And that's not, I'm not trying to detract from them, but um, <clears throat> the message I gave was 
to achieve this sustainability as a top half premiership club, what does our first team need to look like then? And it needs to be packed with international players. They have to be international players. So our recruitment strategy needs to be based on that fact. Even if we buy players at 18, 19, 20, we have to do that on the basis that they are not just going to be first-team players, they're going to be international players. So being a first-team player who simply plays for Southampton's first team in League One or in the Championship is not success when you relate it to what our goal is, which is to be a sustainable top-half club in the Premier League. They have to be international players. The training ground has to be empty on international breaks. So, so what have we got in the academy? Well, actually, in the under-14s, um, and I had some guys who worked for me at the time. One of them was a guy called David Burke, who you missed off the, the list. So David Burke had been um, scouting and, and was responsible for European scouting at Manchester City. Um, and uh, he came to work for me on a, on a sort of consultancy freelance basis to do some analysis on what was in the academy. And uh, talking to the current academy manager, then Matt Crocker, uh, we, we kind of established there were probably four, five or six players in the under-14 squad who we thought had enormous potential. So the club had potential, the academy had potential, um, and therefore the, the phrase, we need to turn that potential into excellence, became the mantra. So... This whole strategy has to have a, a mantra, which is what we're all about. The culture of this club will be that we turn potential into excellence. Now, has, as that becomes um, translated and embedded down the line, that doesn't just mean academy players but get into the first team. It means every staff member has to get better. Every player we bring, whether it's Jose Font from Crystal Palace at 28 years of age, We've got to turn, we've got to give him the opportunity to really reach his full potential, which we did. He ended up being a, a, a European Championship winner with Portugal. But up until we got into the Premier League and he was getting into his 30s, he, went, he had not had an international cap. So it, it had to be a mantra that applied right across the board. So if you were a fitness coach, we had to make you a better one and so on and so forth, which meant that in League One, we didn't have to go out and hire all the best qualified, most experienced staff. We ran an internship program for things like analytics, physiotherapy, um, where we started with um, graduates who needed to get an internship for a year to get their masters done and so on and so forth. A lot of those are either still there in senior positions or they've gone to even more senior positions in, in other clubs. Um, so um, it was it it was it was the whole idea. So if you take that example you gave, um, so Dave Dave Burke uh, became our head of recruitment full time, um, and then was headhunted by Brighton, um, and he came from Brighton. He, he played for Brighton as a kid, um, and Tony Bloom and Paul Barber were redeveloping their training ground, uh, wanted to put in a whole new system because we'd started the black box by then so 
Um, so Brighton were very interested in what we were doing and uh, eventually, you know, offered David a job. So David's role in uh, was always, and I did this with a lot of the staff, was, was to uh, identify who your successor might be down the line. So um, David led me to Paul Mitchell um, and Paul came in from MK Dons, you know, never done anything at Premier League level or before, um, but in unbelievable potential. Um, and obviously he then got, we showcased Paul and he ended up going to Spurs, but same thing. Give me, give me some names, you know, let's have some names on the list who's, who's going to replace you in time. And Ross Wilson was on that list. Um, we did that with coaches. Everyone does it with players. You're always looking at players, but nobody looks at, you know, where are the best sports scientists coming from? You know, so we had a centre of excellence at Bath University. Bath University Sports uh, uh, Village has a significant reputation for producing sports scientists at Olympic level and so on and so forth. Let's tap into that. So we end up with half a dozen of those guys who end up going on to bigger jobs. But, but you know, who... who so the role of anyone in a, in a position at Southampton was to mentor, train and develop the, the, the guy below you. And um, um, a great a great example would be a girl called Natasha Patel who came to us um, as, a, as a master's graduate, did an internship, ended up getting a full-time role as head of academy, sorry, as an academy analyst, ended up being head of academy analytics, ended up at um, Red Bull New York, um, and is is now on her way back to Southampton to head up the academy. So it's that was the whole thing about potential into into excellence had to be the culture of the club, not just a strap line for developing young players into into internationals. So that gave us the basis upon which we could meet those goals set by the owner. If we translated potential into excellence right across the board at everything we do. Um, then we can get promoted to the Premier League within five years. We did it in three. We can get promoted to the Premier League and get into the top half. Um, and we can um, challenge when we're in that top half um, to, and we had two European campaigns. We got to an FA Cup final and a, a Carabao Cup final, FA Cup semi-final, bring that kind of success that the fans would love and enjoy. So... We 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 did all that on the back of the the ownership back in uh, two thousand and nine, from administration to beating Inter Milan in the Europa League, um, buying into that one hundred percent and backing it one hundred percent all the way through. The, the 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 issue was there was then a change of ownership, um, and. Um, a very different type of ownership. Uh, I don't want to really go too into too much detail into it. They were good people, but they didn't quite get the Southampton way. They didn't quite get potential into excellence. I think they just saw the fees we received for Mane, Van Dijk, Lover and all of that and thought that's what football business is all about. Um, and, and so that created a little bit of instability. When a club is changing hands, it doesn't really matter who the owners are. There will be a period when 
um, that gets to the dressing room. So that will have happened at a number of clubs in the last couple of years where there's been a change of ownership that's not exactly lit the fire. And, 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 and you know, we've seen Burnley get new owners with lots of ideas about how they're going to take the club forward and then get relegated. And I'm not blaming the owners for that. I'm just saying what happens is a tension arrives where everybody starts thinking, what's what's going to happen? What's going to happen here? What are they after? What are they going to do? Where, and that's right from the moment it gets leaked because it can take it can take 12 months or more to go through the process of buying a club and due diligence. And that tension grows. So, so when it gets to the point where agents are going, what's happening? And you're saying, nothing's happening. Everything's going to be fine. It's Nothing changes. And they've got a player whose contract's up next year. What are these new owners going to do? They're going to bomb him and get other players. What's the... And then that gets in the dressing room and the dressing room starts talking about, you know, I'm going to get out before the shit hits the fan. Excuse my language. Um, and and then it creates a bit of discord because of this lack of communication about what's really happening, simply because a lot of mergers and acquisitions have to take place in secrecy. So people then guess. A little bit gets to the media. In our case at Southampton, there was a huge media thing around the new owner, Mr. Gow, being involved in a, a witness, state witness to a... Uh, uh, to a scam that ended up with a suicide or something, you know, and and, and then people sit back and go, "Crikey, was what's you know?" And this is will have happened with the all of the media stuff around Newcastle, um, and and so it's you know it creates these things that then affect that culture and and vision that you've you've had because everyone's waiting for the next vision. So what's their vision? What's their when in fact it sh- you should it should mean that even a change of ownership new owners should be looking at what what's gone before them and what's the legacy they they are actually purchasing rather than thinking of we've got a load of new ideas when we come in honestly you'll love it we're going to do this that and the other um, because that can actually work against you it can work the other way um, so that's why, for me, right at the beginning in two thousand and nine, this this cultural aspect was really, really important. That that we had to. So, so my my view with the ownership was, okay, don't change that. If that's what you want, that's what we're working towards. If we have a blip on the journey, don't change it. We'll work out why there's a blip, but do not change that vision because we're going to build everything towards that. Um, and. And although Marcus Lieber died in our first year, you know, he he, he only ever saw uh, League One. He never saw us in the championship. We all thought his daughter who inherited would sell the club because she had no background in football, no no real interest. In fact, it was the opposite. She, she wanted to um, deliver her father's legacy and therefore basically said to us as senior leadership, group was carry on I'll support you get it done the way my father wanted it done so that gave us a very quick turnaround that meant any stresses and pressures that happened there were were quickly um, dismissed and we got on with it you know and then we went on a run which has been unprecedented in South End, Southampton's history until the next lot of ownership came in um, 
So what I do now is in my consultancy advising owners, I try to get my clients to be clients before they actually buy the club so I can help them in determining what is the culture of this club and what do you need to do as owners to go in and be successful rather than go in and buy it without any real idea of what you're going to do and then find that this club doesn't match what you want to do. It's not capable of doing what you want to do. It doesn't have that capacity. You know, it's a small club in a rural area that's going to maximise 30,000 fans. Don't start dreaming that one day you're going to build a new stadium and get 40,000, 50,000 in there. It's, you know, that's not going to happen. But you can be a top 10 Premier League club and sustain that if you apply the right structure and strategies. Um, So, yeah, Southampton was a a, a fantastic um, opportunity for me to put all that into practice and have the faith of ownership to, 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 to let me do that. And then working colleagues, not just the Paul Mitchells and the Rosses that you, you've mentioned, on the football side, not just the Pochettinos, the Coomans and the managers and the rest of it, but working colleagues who were responsible for finance, marketing, you know, commercial stuff, non-executive chairman in Ralph Kruger, who's from your part of the world in Canada, who was an amazing um, Olympic athlete, Olympic coach, um, high-performance individual in ice hockey and knew what he didn't know about football and therefore was a magnificent support because he understood high-performance in elite professional sport but never professed to know anything about football um, and therefore could support me from a high-performance point of view um, and um, at the same time add something in terms of the the sort of chairman leadership. I mean, he was a non-exec chairman. He, he wasn't full-time, um, but he brought an ad- another added dimension to it. Um, so I think that, yeah, the structure was a bit North American, i.e. we had Ralph, who was the chairman, president, didn't have a, an executive role on it other than to be, you know, keep the board in line and keep us all on track as Mr. Motivator, which he was brilliant at. Um, and then there was uh, no chief executive. We had a vice chairman football, which was me. And we had a vice chairman business strategy, which is the current CEO. But we didn't have a CEO. Um, so in, in essence, we had a VP business and a GM football, uh, a bit North American-ish. And then that meant all of the football side of the club, the strategy was down to me. And all of the business strategy was down to Martin, who's now the, the, the CEO there. But they've gone back, the, the 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 new ownership have gone back to the traditional model of, of absent board, uh, executive team and CEO. Um, now, it, 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 what that doesn't matter. What matters is the culture and, and whether they are bought into that potential intellection. That, you know, as far as I'm aware, they still use that mantra. Um, and the new owners have a background in um, player development and, and data analysis and the rest of it, as in Rasmus Ankerson from Midtjylland and Brentford. So um, maybe that's the start of a revival and getting back on track to that potential in the, into excellence um, mantra that we that we had. 
obviously you guys at the time, Les, were getting it so, so right off the pitch in terms of your recruitment. I mean, I'm just wondering, I mean, you look at some of the players that have come through at Southampton, Virgil van Dijk, Sadio Mane, Graziano Pelle, Dusan Tadic, like so many, Dejan Lovren. I mean, what made it, what made them say yes to you guys at that time? Because obviously, I mean, we're, we're hearing everything of what was going on behind the scenes. But once you're in the negotiating room with these guys, with no end of top-end clubs, especially during the third stages of their career to pick from, why choose Southampton? Um, I think it was a mixture of um, why us choose them and why them choose Southampton. It, it was bringing that together. So, for instance, um, we we started to build a Premier League club in the in the Championship. So that was... In the championship, we started to look further afield and abroad at players, and we in the black box was really up and running big time. Then, with the view of what do we need in our database for the next three years, and so on. So, a lot of those names would have been on it, um, and but um, that we we were kind of not ready at that particular moment. Um, we we knew that Oxley Chamberlain, Adam Lalana, Ricky Lambert, we there were, you know, there were half the squad we knew would be able to play in the Premier League. Um and um then we started to recruit players like Maya Yoshida, the Japanese captain at this World Cup, um, who Maya would have come because he wanted to play in England. We were able to sell him the the dream. Um and at that time, you know, the level he was playing at, he wasn't getting, he wasn't getting, you know, uh, approaches from Bayern Munich or or from, you know, the big German clubs or whatever. So there were a few we were able to sell the dream to, um, and then and then when we got into the Premiership, um, we were pole position, if you like, to and again this is potential into ex- excellence. Um, because our background was back-to-back promotions now in the Premier League, South Coast Club, good stadium, 40 minutes, 45 minutes from London on the train, da-di-da-di-da. Uh, we, had a, we had some good selling points for players who felt they were, they had the potential to have a Premier League career. Some of those players were under the radar, like Sadio Mane, who we'd, we'd tracked for a couple of years. One of the things the black box and analytics told us was um, second transition is always more successful than the first one. So essentially, um, we looked at, do we go to Africa to find Sadio when he's 16, 17, 18? Um, what, it, what, what the data was telling us that, that in, in England, that transition doesn't work very well. They they come from a particular culture and environment into a very very different culture, and and find it hard to settle, and then and then they don't quite make it. Whereas Africa to Portugal, Africa to Holland, Africa to France seems to work, um, and therefore let's monitor those young Africans when they when they have made that first transition. So then you look at clubs. Um, where that their system, their their um, the way they work, the way they recruit those players, and the way they deal with them is similar to if they've been at Southampton. So, 
Um, Red Bull was one and a very big development pathway program. Very good at it. So we were always interested in what players of Red Bull were interested in. Um, uh, Sporting Lisbon was another one that was like that. Um, and then you go, you look at Ajax and and and, and Feyenoord and particularly Dutch clubs where they have, you know, the Dutch have a very good player development history. So it's where you scout was was very important. And is there an opportunity to see these guys play at a a good senior level that makes you think they they're, they're talented enough to play in the in the Premier League? Because it's so hard to go and watch a game in in Senegal or or, or South Africa or or Argentina, Hung, uh, Uruguay, with young players and say, yeah, they'll transition to the Premier League. It's really difficult. But once they've made that one step and 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 are, and are achieving at a club like Red Bull. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm talking Red Bull Salzburg. Um, the, the Premiership's a step up for them, and you 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 can dangle that in front of a Sadio and say this is your introduction to the Premiership. Now the agents are clever, so they look at Southampton and they go, <clears throat> if I take you to Manchester City or Chelsea or Arsenal now, uh, I'm going to have to go and beg. I'm going to have to say, look, you've not seen my player play, I don't think, but he's good enough for Arsenal. And it all becomes hard work and you get fobbed off. Or if they go, yeah, yeah, we've seen him. Uh, we'd like we'd like him to come. They're going to they're gonna put you on loan somewhere or you're going to play in their second team. Um, whereas if you go to Southampton, you're going to play in their first team and they're going to showcase your talent. And believe it or not, I believe in you, my player, you're gonna you're gonna smash it at Southampton, and you're gonna to go to Arsenal. You're gonna to go to Liverpool. You're gonna go now. Once we do a couple of those, then it all speaks for itself. So so everyone was watching Virgil Van Dijk at Celtic. We'd already watched Virgil Van Dijk in Holland. He was on our list. We thought, yeah, this is one for the future. When he played at Celtic, they played in the Champions League. They played in the in the Europa League. Uh, he 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 was able to perform in that. The reports we were getting back from our scouts was there are still scouts like Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, uh, Man United looking at him, but they've all got doubts about this big, long leg, gangly fellow. Um, now because we tracked his progress longer, we were in a position to to kind of analyse him against other centre backs that we were had been looking at. And say he he fits our bill. He's he's young. He's got all the right equipment. Um, yes, he makes mistakes, but he's playing in in a in a cauldron at, at Celtic Park, and in big games, and he's got the right mentality. We'll pounce. So so we were brave enough to go for him when the others were thinking. Let's yeah, let's keep monitoring him, and we. So we kind of developed that ability to go and pounce before they did. Now, it only lasted a short time because people then go, well, they're doing it. We better start doing it. Um, and some did it badly as well. Some people, some went and bought 18-year-olds for the future and it never, the future never came. Um, but yes, so um, what attracted them to that club, this club was, uh, if you take, if you take the, Classic example would be um, 
people say to me, just imagine if you had Virgil van Dijk, Tober, Elderveld, Diane Lovren, you know, now. And you get, yeah, but the, the, we, we would never have that because, because Toby replaced Diane and, and Virgil replaced Toby because that, you know, they were always going to move on, but you have to have that succession plan, that succession list. Um, and so, and so when, when, um, when um, Diane Lovren sees Jose Font playing for Portugal um, and sees uh, Luke Shaw playing for England and sees players at our club excelling, you know, him and his agent are going to say, that's the place to go. So we got Diane from Lyon. Um, but Diane's ambition, as was his agent's ambition, was be he's going to go to Southampton, he's going to showcase, so he's going to move to Liverpool. Now, if we say... No, we don't like that. We want him to stay with us. We're not going to get Diane Lovren. We're going to get the second best. So we have to understand they're going to move on. But for a little while, we're going to have one of the best players in Europe. Uh, he doesn't know that yet, but but that's going to happen. So let's let's look. So Diane Lovren goes to Liverpool. Of course, Toby Alderweireld wants to come to to Southampton. The unfortunate thing for us was Toby was on loan from Atletico Madrid, and we couldn't get him out on a permanent. We thought we had him on a permanent right at the end of the season. It had all been agreed. Um, and then Tottenham made At- Atletico a bigger bid. Now, that they, they didn't need to because the, the option to buy Toby for 12 million quid was exactly what was in the contract. So, but, and we could have enforced it. But what they were able to do was offer Toby Alderweireld an enormous contract and to play next to Vertonghen and selling the dream of being the, 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 the Belgian national team pair playing for Tottenham and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we have to accept that. It's Tottenham. It's not. So so that's where, where Virgil comes in. Why does Virgil decide to sign for us? Because he's seen what's happened to Diane Lovren, because he's seen what's happened to Toby Alderweireld, and now he's the next one in line. And, you know, it, and we always knew that he'd end up somewhere else. Um, and then what we found is where, where we were tracking clubs like Celtic and um, and uh, Red Bull uh, and 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 Ajax. Um, it's interesting. We first saw Pierre Emil Hoiberg at Ajax before he went from their academy to Bayern Munich's academy, um, and then we we bought him from Bayern. Um, and um, we we found that now we were being tracked by Man United and Liverpool. In fact, Liverpool were all over us. Um, where our scouts went, Liverpool scouts went. It was incredible. And, uh, and obviously, um, four players end up, Southampton players end up at Liverpool. Um, so their view would be, if he's a Southampton player, that brand works for us as well. It's going to be good for us as well. Um, and... Uh, Man United went down the line of trying to headhunt most of our European scouts. Well, they did headhunt quite a few of them. Um, so their view was Southampton are getting something right. Let's let's go and get all their scouts on board and do it that way. But what they didn't have was the Southampton way, the understanding of the culture. Our scouts knew what they were looking at to bring in to Southampton. Um, so just nicking our scouts wasn't going to work. 
Um, but it did it did mean that the we'd become the showcase club, so we could get players. Um, but now clubs were not were looking at players we were looking at and taking them before we could get them in the books. Um, so so you know it had to evolve again, but at the same time, recruitment for the academy had to be absolutely spot on and. At this World Cup, I did a, a quick calculation and I included loan players, youth players and and first team players, squad players. Um, at the start of this World Cup, we had, I think it was 18 former Southampton players in, in the squads. And then when Japan played um, Croatia and they tossed up for the penalty shootout and it was Maya Yoshida and Diane Loveland, it kind of just brought it home to me that when we in 2009 said that squad has got to be full of international players, here's your evidence. Just have a look at this World Cup from Jan Benrek at Poland, you know, and that and that doesn't even count the, the teams that never got there, you know, the, the, the teams that didn't quite make it. So, um, all the players that didn't quite get in their squads, um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel for Prousey. It would have been nice for Prousey to be there. He could have been added to that list. But, um, yeah, it, it's 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 very um, important that you build that reputation because that makes it easier then to recruit players because players know that if I go there, there's every chance that one of the big boys is going to come and watch me and want, want to have a look at what I can deliver. And piecing it together, I mean, and even enhancing that reputation a bit more, Les, I mean, you were working with two, or you have worked alongside two of the most esteemed talent developers in the game, or talent enhancers in the game, and Maurizio Pacentino and Ronald Koeman. I mean, what were the similarities slash differences in working alongside both? Um, <clears throat> again, um, as I mentioned earlier, when, when Maurizio was a rookie, um, it, there's interesting stories in his autobiography and a couple of other things. Um, I've been saving the truth for mine, but um, uh, Paul Mitchell and I um, were very keen on a young kid at Espanol called um, um, Philippe Coutinho. Um, who who was 18, had come through their academy, and Maurizio had given him his chance in the first team. And um, so we watched uh, Coutinho very, very closely over a long period of time. Um, and we made a decision we were going to go for him, and we really would have got him very, very cheap at that time. Espanyol was struggling. Maurizio had already left. Um, and it gave us the opportunity to talk to Maurizio and say, what, what do you think of this boy, Coutinho? Now, well, when we'd been watching Coutinho, both live and in on video, you can't fail to get a look at Espanyol and the Pochettino. And, you know, Paul and I had this kind of, you know, that came very like us. And that's why Coutinho would be a really good fit in that position. Um, um and we liked the way they played, and, and it was it was a style that we 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 liked, and we, 
you know, wanted to develop at Southampton. So that got us thinking about the coach. Um, and by having an opportunity to speak to him about the player, you get to get a little bit more understanding of him. Um, and it, it, I took to him straight away. We both we both did. Paul met him a couple more times on visits to Barcelona to, to look at Coutinho. Coutinho, I think, fell through only because we pulled out of it, but that's another story. Um, but um, it, it, it then switched our attention to Poch. Um, so we wanted to find out a little bit more about him. And uh, at, at this time, there was no thought of like, recruiting him in terms of we weren't thinking of getting Nigel Atkins out the door. Um, but um, it, it was one we wanted to keep an eye on. He'd only been coaching eight months. He, he, he'd never had, had any experience before that. Um, and um, I happened to know Guillaume Balag, uh, the, the broadcaster, uh, and also we had our own Spanish scouts, one of whom was resident Spanish. Um, and everything that came back to us through the contacts was, this guy's good, this guy's going to be a good coach, this guy gets it. Um, and he'd also made, a, well, you know, what we discovered was he'd made a careful plan to get qualified, learn about coaching, and he, 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 that's, that's where the Barcelona link came in because he got to know Pep Guardiola really well. Um, and they did their coaching pro license together. And so it was getting this kind of intelligence back in. Um, should there be a need to find a manager in the near future, let's keep tracking Pochettino. Um, and um, the, the, former chairman of the club before Ralph Kruger, um, very surprisingly decided that it, 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 Nigel Adkins was, was past his sell-by date. And so Nigel got fired and it left me in a position where I didn't see that coming and had to re react quickly. Um, and there were a number of candidates in the frame and I persuaded the chairman that the least thing we should do is interview, meet this guy get him over, meet him. So I phoned him and he, I phoned Maurizio um, and he was interested, um, wanted to come and said, I want to bring my guys with me. And I said, great, more than merrier. So he brought Jesus and uh, Tony and, and Miguel with him. So we set up this interview, um, but I'd, I'd said to Maurizio, like, we're going to do an interview. We want to find out about you and your the way you coach, what you do, your thoughts, your feelings about tactics and strategies and so on well they'd rehearsed it down to a T they brought the laptop they brought their presentations and it was a fantastic uh interview process um where Maurizio did the talking Miguel operated the computer um and then if they talked about playing from the back Tony through Jesus who spoke English would talk about the goalkeeper's role in back four, and this is what they did at Espanyol. And, and you could see they were a team. They were, like, bonded. They were a real team. They knew each other's strengths and weaknesses, um, but the actual information they were communicating was top draw, top draw. Um, the chairman, uh, at the end of the interview, still had another 
fancied candidate, who I won't mention, who I've managed to persuade him not to uh, pursue that route. Um, and uh, the we we, we decided on on, on Potts, phoned him up, brought him over again for a kind of second interview, which was to get to know other members of the board and that. Um, and uh, and uh, he just he just hit the ground running. We timed it so we could have this break at Barcelona. Um, made a magnificent impression on the team during that period, and then we just climbed. We just climbed up the league, um, and unfortunately brought a lot of attention to to Maurizio, the style of play, the rest of it. Um, and so in the after his second season, where we'd um we got into Europe, uh, we had to replace him. So um but Maurizio's um was very upfront coach on the grass. Miguel and the others did their bits, but Maurizio was very big picture, out on the grass, eleven v eleven shape. Detail, everything, lots of video, um, meticulous detail. They work really together as a team. Um, as I said to you before, we, we couldn't go down that route again um, because we'd made such great progress. We needed an impact. We needed an impact appointment, but someone who we knew would be able to do the job. So there were other candidates in the frame who were big names who didn't convince me they could do the job. Um and um, I knew Ronald Koeman's agent, phoned him and said, you know, he was at Feyenoord at the time. And I'd done some business with Feyenoord, with Graziano um, uh, and uh, Geordie Classy. No, Geordie came in when Ronald was in. But anyway, I knew, I knew the sporting director there, rang him and said, is that right? Ronald's out of contract and you're not going to renew it yet. Ronald wants a break. He doesn't want to renew his contract. Okay, do you mind if I talk to him? No. Uh, met Ronald, completely different character, um, um, very upfront, very uh, confident in terms of exuding confidence. Um, uh, and um, very clear on the way he wanted to work. But it was, we were not going to lose the culture. He, he, had done his homework before this meeting. He understood, he'd seen the team, he liked the players. Um, and he'd he'd had a track record of bringing in young players when he was at Ajax, young players when he was at Feyenoord, being successful with that. He had no issues about our, our ambitions and the 50% and so on. In fact, we probably got more players in during Koeman's time through that door. The, the 50% was hit during Koeman's period. Um, but um, he uh, what he brought was presence he brought a presence that was where, where players were thinking oh we've lost the really popular coach that we like in Maurizio what Ronald Koeman did was bring in a presence straight away and no one could say show me your track record he'd won medals and everything as a player as a coach he'd, he'd been there and done it so um, and um he, again, had a good relationship with players individually, had strong 
disciplinary um, uh, ethics. So I've soon put them in their place if they... And, and I think that we also needed a bit of that because the players had got, been successful with Maurizio and it just needed them to be sort of grounded a little bit again. So so introduced... That that wasn't... I mean, Maurizio was unbelievable on discipline, but he handled it in a very different different way. Um, but what Ronald did was, was basically... Um, Erwin Koeman, his brother, was the coach... So he kind of did what Maurizio did, which was the big picture stuff on the pitch, while Ronald interjected uh, or summarised or stepped in. Um, and Ronald was more one-to-ones, come and sit down with me in the office. I don't think you're doing enough of this. I think you need to get further forward, I think. So he had a different way of working with the players. Um and I think what it did was it gave the players enough of a change, but it kept the same momentum and the same um, way of playing. So the pressing, the the the, the um, attack, attacking, trying to play in the opposition's third, etc., stayed. It was also part of the same same uh, mantra. So it was a really good transition. And then obviously under Ronald, we had two of our best seasons. Um, which again, you know, um, highlighted him to, to other clubs and Everton had just had a big injection of money through Fahad Mashiri and they wanted a new coach and they wanted to build a new stadium and they wanted it all to be big and they sold Ronald the dream and um, and Ronald, Ronald went. I think he regretted it. Um, uh, and um, it was, you know, it, it was just another case of... We've showcased someone and they've gone on, but it didn't quite didn't quite work out for them there because they didn't have the support structure and the strategy and all the culture in place that we had. Um, and then I think he realised that that he thought he, he took that for granted, um, and then realised he didn't he didn't have it, um, and so that didn't didn't work out for him. But he went to the Dutch FA and I went to the English FA and then we came across each other again in the Nations League. Um, and um, um, so he, you know, yeah, he had his his period with them, had his period with Barcelona. So he hasn't done bad. Um, so we'll see see what happens with him next. But uh, it, yeah, it worked. It worked. It worked for us. Um, but at the end of that, we had this coming towards the end of that period. We had the change of ownership and things changed a little bit in the way we were we were able to recruit managers in particular um uh, it, it wasn't quite the same um and so that hamstrung us a little bit because there were coaches um that were on our hit list that were out of our reach when we replaced Puel um because Puel was an interesting one because came eighth in the league got to the cup final. We lost to Man United. If VAR had been in, I think we might have beaten Man United in that cup final. Uh, and we got to the group stages of the Europa League and yet it, the fans never took to him and it never quite, it, you know, it was never, it, although you couldn't you couldn't knock his record. He just, he didn't end up being the fit. But by that time, we had the new owners um, and we weren't we weren't replacing 
the Virgil van Dijk's with the next Virgil van Dijk, we were going to choice number two or three. Um, and it ended up we were going to choice number two or three with coaches as well. Um, not that they were bad guys, um, but it just uh, for Pellegrini, Pellegrino, it he came in just at the wrong time when our best players were were going, uh, and were not being replaced by by players of equal stature, if you like, um, and that made it that made it uh, difficult for him. Um, Amazing. In, in, it's amazing, Les. Sorry to interject. You know the amount of different characters that you've come across and worked alongside in the football industry. You know, from owners, managers, right down to the players. But I'm pretty sure. I mean, in spite of your hugely successful and you know equally long career, you've never really worked with Hollywood A-list celebrities before, which you're doing at this current time at Wrexham. I mean, for everyone listening, <laughs> what are they like to work alongside? But Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. Yeah, well, if Vinnie Jones is listening, he'll, he'll, he won't be happy with that because I worked a, <laughs> a lot with Vinnie Jones. A list, mm, maybe at Leeds. Um, yeah, they're, 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 it's a unique, it's a unique scenario at Wrexham. I mean, Ryan and Rob are unbelievable people. I mean, you know, how could you calculate that the Queen uh, Consort and the King? of England would be stood on Wrexham's pitch next to Rob Ryan McElhinney, Rob McElhinney and Ryan Reynolds. It's just, it just doesn't, it, you know, and this is the kind of thing that happens at Wrexham because of those two. Um, but it's, it's, they can't be repeated. They are unique owners, you know, they, because they didn't come in to ownership with a, an investment head on that said, we'll find a little club with great potential. We'll turn it around and flip it and it'll become worth a lot of money. That was never their intention. They were never, they'd never even thought of owning a football club. I mean, this comes out in the early parts of the documentary where um, they they had no interest in football um, until one of their production guys, Humphrey Kerr, who's now the executive director of the club, who's a scriptwriter, who's English, who supports Liverpool, was sneaking off during photo shoots with, with Rob to watch Liverpool in the Champions League. And then Rob found him watching a game and Humphrey ended up educating Rob around what football means to people in England um, in terms of it being the centre of the community, the hub of the community, people's lifelong passions. And, you know, kind of against this idea that if a franchise isn't working in one city in America, you move it to another one. You know, that, that would, would be abhorrent in terms of the culture of football that, you're born and bred, it's in your family, it never leaves you, no matter where the team is, you, you're you there for life, etc. And Rob liked that, he loved all that. And you mentioned uh, about the blue-collar work workers in Canada, um, that's where Ryan Reynolds comes from. And both these guys would say, yeah, we come from communities like that, we come from communities of working people where where, what, what really struck them was the history of Wrexham, going back to Roman times of Wrexham was where the Welsh kept the Romans out of Wales, you know, the, the, when they took over Chester. And that's why there's this huge rivalry with Chester, even though they haven't been in the same league for donkey's years, is, yeah, that's the Romans trying to get into Wales and we're, we're the last bastion of support and the Romans are not going to conquer Wales, etc., etc. 
Um, they love those stories. And and then the, the pit disaster in the 40s, you know, they they love the way the town rebounded, rebounded, rebuilt itself and so on and so forth. Um, so they they their loving for Wrexham as a town and the club came from just listening to all these stories. Because when they bought the club, they, they never went to Wrexham. They'd never seen it. They'd never been there. But this idea that this club that had once been at the top that once had international football and international footballers and so on had been rescued by the fans and was hanging on the edge of the cliff, refusing to die because of the fans and the community. That just appealed to them and they got interested in it and um, decided, I think with a little bit of persuasion, I think I think Humphrey persuading Rob, who then persuaded Ryan. But once they got into it, it was, they were bitten by the bug and... You know they'll they'll talk about the fact that it takes over their lives. You know they might be filming the next big epic film, and they'll hear something that that the player at Wrexham has got injured or something, and it ruins their day. It's kind of you know they have just bought into it big time, and and they're not. It's not a thing where they're saying we want to be seen to be successful. We want to get promotion. We want to go up the leagues because it's a big ego trip, and we're going to throw loads of money at it. Yes, they they are investing significant amounts of money for the level of football, but that's not all going on wages. Despite the fact that all our competitors would like to say that um, that that's um, we're just paying over the odds. Yeah, we're paying top end salaries for this league, and probably more than half the league above. But but we are also competing with Notts County and one or two others who are doing similar. That's not the point. What they are doing is investing in Wrexham, the club. So, um, you know, Wrexham had to sell the training ground to survive. So they want to they want to build a training ground. They had to sell the racecourse stadium to survive. So they bought it back. Um, they had to shut down, you know, one end of the of the of the of the cop end of the stadium because it was unsafe and they couldn't afford to make it safe. So they're going to rebuild it. That's the story for them. It's 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 putting back into a community that saved its football club. Now, obviously, that makes a good documentary, um, and it and it you know the documentary's gone down very very well, and it's bringing more and more attention to the club, which brings more commercial interest in the club, um, which is putting money back into the club, and. Yeah, whilst Disney will will be paying for that privileges of that documentary, every intention is that all that money goes back into the club. So these guys are not trying to make a quick buck on on bringing Wrexham um, uh, into into the global audience and then and then and then take some money out of it. You know that I I I firmly believe that if the day ever came where they decided they walk away and and they were to realise a profit on selling the club to new owners, they'd probably give that money back to the fans. You know, it's it's that's how they are. Now, that is totally unique in football. Um, and and but what, it, what it's done is it's just raised the level of passion and excitement and desire in, the, in North Wales. The other thing Wrexham fans would say is we represent North Wales. So you forget your Cardiffs and your Swansea's and all those down there. 
they only represent Cardiff or Swansea. We represent North Wales, real Wales. So it's it's a real passionate story that that being A-list movie stars, actors and story writers, that's that. They love that. Um and again, they don't for one minute think, you know, they're gonna say this is how you should run the club or this is these are the players that should be playing. They just love being hyper fans and um but they are also in their private lives very astute, carefully calculating businessmen. You know, Ryan's Ryan's as much a businessman as he is an actor. Um and and I think that they are therefore quite level headed around not being stupid and and just and just it's not they're not gonna gamble on it either. They're gonna they want good budgeting, they want good uh investment. They want checks and balances against, you know, where the money's going in player salaries, player wages, transfer fees, and at the same time where it's going in terms of property development for the training ground and the rest of it. So they're not a kind of we can pull the wool over their eyes investors either. They 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 expect to see a budget and they expect to see it managed properly, um, which is. I wouldn't be there if that wasn't the case. And I don't think Sean Harvey, my colleague, would because that's how I would advise owners anyway. So so it's a case of, you know, um they they are not being taken advantage of, which we've seen in the past where owners have thrown a lot of money into it and uh been absent owners living abroad and and uh, people have, have, have gambled that money away. Um that's never gonna happen at Wrexham because of this legacy to the fans, you know, they will never want Wrexham ever to be in, in a position where they might lose their football club. So, yeah, and that's it. The combination of all those things makes it really unique and real, real good fun in terms of, you know, I, 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 I just, and we play well, we're a good team. We are enjoyable to watch. Um, and it, yeah. And, you know, Will a documentary mean players, clubs start coming for our players down the line? You know, will our success mean that guys that take us up will be attracted? I think I think um, it'd have to be pretty big clubs. And if that happened, you know, it would happen. Um, and, you know, does it make Phil Parkinson attractive to, to bigger clubs? Pro- probably does, you know. But I think what we've managed to do, and that a lot of that is to do with Rob and Ryan, is to develop a culture at the club where people are not looking over their shoulder about what does this mean for me? Is this a stepping stone? Can I move on? They're actually enjoying being there and being successful as it stands. And, you know, hopefully we will go up um, and then we've got to take the next level in terms of, you know, off the field structure and stuff like that. But we're not going to build a Premier League club in League Two. You know, we're going to build a top League Two club, and then we're going to build a League One club, and so on. Um, um, because you know that's that's it has it has to be evolution, not just a massive reg- revolution. And they understand that and buy into that. So yeah, it's good. It's good. It's very enjoyable. I never thought I'd ever hear Maurizio Pochettino and Deadpool mentioned in the same podcast. But, but Les, I have to really thank you for the last hour and a half. I think it's been or so. I mean, it's been thoroughly enjoyable in my part. And 
I know for everyone listening, you know, to the countless and umpteen experiences that you've had in the game. And you can see the way you're even speaking of the game, the the raw affection and love which you still have for to the have for the game to this very day. And it's been brilliant that you've been able to join me here today and pass on those lessons. But for anyone who wishes to follow in your boots and pursue a similar role in that of sporting director in the football industry, what would be the one piece of advice you'd have for them to close this podcast? Um, I would I would say that you uh you should you should find a way to um learn about the the, the entire landscape of the football industry and um, work out um, what skills you have that are transitional into that and then what skills and knowledge and experience you need to build, some of which can be built on the job, but some of which you have to work on. Um, and now, as I said at the beginning, there are a number of courses and things that you can do um, to learn and gain experience, but that's not going to make you into a sporting director. Um you really have to work out, is it, am I suited to this? Am I, do I have transitional skills? What are the ones I'm missing? What do I need to build on them and, and, and work it out? Um, because it's not a job that you can be dropped into the deep end and, and, and hope you can swim. Um, you need, you need to have um, some specific experience that lends itself to that role. Fantastic. Les, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure.